Hi everyone, this is Garrett Marquis, Global Head of External Communications here at BNY Mellon. Welcome back for another episode of our BNY Mellon Perspectives Podcast. Today, we have a discussion centered on a watershed moment in recent financial history. The transition away from the London Interbank Offer Rate, or LIBOR. To put this in context, the benchmark rate affects around $300 trillion of trades globally. Following several years of global regulators and central banks driving international efforts to phase out the use of LIBOR in favor of robust alternatives known as risk-free rates, the end of the publication of LIBOR is imminent. To mark this significant milestone, BNY's Jason Granite met with Edwin Schooling Ladder, Director of Markets and Wholesale Policy for the Financial Conduct Authority. Some of you may remember Jason from Other Perspectives podcasts. He wears a few hats here, including as Chief Investment Officer, but he's also Executive Sponsor for BNY Mellon's LIBOR Transition Program, and he's worked closely with global stakeholders on the transition for years. Meanwhile, Edwin is one of the most consequential voices and leaders guiding the transition. Jason and Edwin sit down to reflect on lessons learned from the UK's move away from LIBOR, implications for the US dollar transition, and the next big shift in markets once the LIBOR transition is complete. They make this hugely important but somewhat difficult topic accessible to anyone interested in financial markets, and they have fun doing it. Please enjoy, and as always, please listen, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you at the next episode. Oh, what a wonderful opportunity we have today. Thank you very much, Mr. Uh, Edwin Schooling Ladder, for joining us here on uh, BNY Mellon Perspectives. It's uh, obviously a very appropriate time to have you you join us. So, um, as folks uh, may or may not know, Edwin is with the FCA. He's one of the the key participants in what has been a, a massive undertaking uh, here in the LIBOR transition. So just let us, let us get us going. Edwin, why don't you kind of introduce yourself, talk about your role, and most importantly, just to educate you know folks broadly, how has the FCA come to be in the world of LIBOR? Um, you know, that's something that is a little bit of a mystery. You have all these global interest rates, yet everything seems to fall uh, in the UK. Yeah, thank you, Jason. Pleasure to to be with you today. So as you said, I'm Edwin Schooling Latter. I'm the Director of Markets and Wholesale Policy and Wholesale Supervision at the UK's FCA or Financial Conduct Authority. The FCA uh, regulates securities and derivatives markets. It supervises banks as well as almost all other um, UK financial sector firms. So for those um, more familiar with sort of US um, agency structure, for example, whereas FCA is a sort of combination of the SEC, the CFTC, and parts of the Fed. And the reason um, that we have a particular role to play in the LIBOR transition is because the FCA is actually the supervisor, regulator of the LIBOR interest rate benchmarks. And that means, in particular, we supervise the benchmarks administrator, a company called ICE Benchmark Administration, or RBA. We supervise the submission of data to LIBOR. We have to judge whether the rate remains representative of the, the market it's supposed to measure. We have powers to intervene to mitigate risks associated with production of the benchmark. And all those powers apply to US dollar LIBOR just as much as they did or do to, to sterling LIBOR. 
So uh, thanks, Edward. I think it gives good perspective on on, on why on why we're we're chatting. And so when I think back at the last watershed date, it was July twenty seventh, two thousand seventeen. Uh, when when our good friend Mr. Andrew Bailey gave a speech that set off this chain of events leading to the end of 2021. And I remember hearing countless times, oh, that's crazy. There's no way this is going to happen. LIBOR is ubiquitous. There's no way. And sure, sure enough, here we are in the beginning of 2022. That date has come and gone. Um, and that that monumental moment in, in financial history has has kind of happened. And so can you talk about the build up to that? Um, you know, going back to July of, of, of 2017, when you were staring at some financial Mount Everest to climb and thinking about um, um, how to do this, talk about some of the, 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 the key kind of benchmarks and, and, tack, and items we tackled to get from, from there to, to here at the end of the year. Okay, that, that's a great perspective to, to take, Jason. As you said, it was back in July 2017 when the FCA announced that it would not be keeping LIBOR going beyond the end of 2021. Of course, I had the advantage of knowing that announcement was about to be um, made. But in fact, I was in, in Washington when the uh, speech was published. So I can remember exactly where I was, a nice hotel in Alexandria, actually, um, uh, having my morning coffee and looking at the coverage in the Washington Post. As you said, the reaction from contract, uh, contacts in uh, financial markets was one of incredulity. And that's because LIBOR was referenced in contracts with a notional value of something like $265 trillion across derivatives, bonds, loans, mortgages, other consumer products. So that looked a pretty daunting task. Uh, and there were a lot of really key decision points um, along that journey. In fact, the date itself in 2021 was one that we discussed very carefully with other stakeholder authorities. Um, in the United States, in Japan, and, and Switzerland um, in particular. And there was some really key work by ISDA to tease out a global consensus on uh, the right fallback uh, for LIBOR in derivative contracts. That, that consensus was sub subsequently adopted across many other products as well. And uh, it's um, really great that some have commented um, since the the switch off of the sterling, yen, Swiss franc, and euro LIBOR panels. But in practice, it, that's been something of a Y2K moment. So almost unnoticeable in the, the world at large. Now, if it stays that way, um, that's a, a really great outcome. And indeed, beyond what I would have dared to, to hope for back in July 2017. Yeah, and so think about that. I, you, know, you mentioned a couple of things there that I'll, I'll get into but just on this idea of reflecting, you know, obviously when we were we were looking at that long road, there was there was clearly could have been could have been bumpy. What were some of the big lessons that were learned through that period that might be applicable beyond just you know we'll get into some things happening here in the U.S. with LIBOR, but beyond this that market participants can take away more broadly. Yeah, so I think there are there are quite a, a number of those. Now, one I particularly like to highlight is. Um, how much um, the industry and regulators can achieve when they work together. Been lots of big regulatory reforms over the years. Um, sometimes those go relatively smoothly, sometimes not so smoothly. Um, but in my experience, what really made this one um, stand out was the, the fact it was a team effort. 
was cooperative um, right from the beginning. And I think we can uh, we'll certainly look to, to draw from that, replicate that um, in the future. Of course, with lots of other um, elements that helped, um, I would pull out, for example, the fact that we set clear dates to work to some years in advance um, and we stuck to them. I think that matters. Um, absolutely no doubt looking forward that the dates for the end of the US dollar panel um, will also be stuck to. Uh, I think in terms of that authorities and um, industry coordination, um, the sort of Sonia First initiatives, um, where we got participants in relevant markets to, to come together and decide today was the day to, to, to put the new risk-free rate benchmark first and, and the relevant LIBOR rate second. I think those were um, very important. They were they didn't mean they didn't mean kind of absolute change on one day, but they were really important inflection points in building um, the new markets. And of course, U.S. authorities and industry have uh, subsequently done the same for SOFA with their various SOFA first um, initiatives. Yeah, look, you talked about about teamwork there. I, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, definitely in the in the industry working groups I've been involved in, U.S. global. Um, otherwise, the, the coordination and, and, and the communication, especially, you know, you and I have had that. We've had it with some of our other colleagues. Um, always transparent, both sides always willing to, to listen. I think that, that you know, I agree with you. And I, I think the industry can take that away that, you know, if you have constructive conversations at the table, then we can think about the best way to get from point A to point B um, in, in the financial landscape. And what was really interesting to me about this one was how global it was, right? You're talking about, you had mentioned earlier, you had coordinated with the US, Switzerland, Japan, all these others. Now talk about the international collaboration, because one of the things that I think goes kind of un, unappreciated in, in, in global finance is how intertwined the markets are. LIBOR is a poster child for how intertwined global markets are. But talk about the international coordination here. I think that was critical um, to, to, to some of the achievement. It's a great question and one that came up a lot um, during the process. Um, uh, candidly, I think market participants were, were always worried about whether international authorities were talking to each other enough. Um, but when you were in one of those um, uh, authorities, um, it was... Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, li liaison with our counterparts in the Fed or um, the Bank of Japan or the JFSA was a weekly, sometimes even a daily reality. And uh, indeed, partly perhaps due to the uh, pandemic to a degree, there were, there were periods where I felt I'd spent more time in David Bowman's living room in a virtual way than, than in my own office. And similarly with your study. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Some of that um, uh, discussion, of course, took place um, uh, you know, bilaterally um, or in um, group calls uh, between the authorities. Some of it took place in, in the formal structures that help bring international authorities together in what, after all, are international financial markets. So, so things like the Financial Stability Board um, set up um, back in the day to, as part of learning the lessons from previous um, financial stresses and the importance of coordination. I think really proved their worth as a vehicle to coordinate and get together and have a single common voice on the need to do things, the, the, the reason for doing things, the timetables by, by which they needed to be done. So look, uh, you know, obviously no one has been 
closer to the core of the apple uh, on this than you in, in, in so many different ways. So let's talk about where we are right now. We're, 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 we're recording this here in January of 2022. The end of 2021 has come and gone, just as uh, uh, Mr. Bailey predicted back in, uh, in July of 20, 2017. Um, you know, we have the lion's share of the LIBOR rates have, have come and gone. We'll get into some nuances. The U.S. has a little bit for some of the key U.S. rates is a little bit longer lead time to let some work out of some legacy positions. What, what, what exactly went to make this all so smooth at the end of the year? And how can we think about applying that as we as we look at the, um, the summer of 23 for the U.S.? You know, you were right there, front row seats, et cetera. What was so what what happened to make it so, you know, uh, you know, knock wood easy? Here at the end of uh, at the end of last year, so we've touched on we've touched on some of what I think are the key factors um, there already, and um, not all of them. When I say what have we touched on already, well, it was having um, uh, clear you know, dates and sticking to them. It was having consensus on um, what successor arrangements looked like. Um, it was um, that team effort across um, industry and authorities and across jurisdictions. I think the other bit, frankly, was um, preparation and communication. So preparation in terms of the enormous amounts of work done um, across a very large number of firms, whether banks or asset management companies or um, in some cases non-financial um, corporations as well. Um, to be ready for those deadlines um, and a massive effort to, to keep communicating. So uh, one of my colleagues used to say repetition is the mother of all understanding. And um, I'm sure I would have bored um, some people with uh, um, constant speeches on LIBOR. But I think uh, last year, for Did example, you know how many speeches you did give? Do you know I how do many? know that uh, uh, my team pointed out to me that, that in 2021, we we did 77 pieces of communication, um, uh, public communication on, on LIBOR. So enough for, enough for anyone, um, I hope. The, uh, I mean, perhaps one other thing to, well, in terms of comparing UK experience now, um, done as it were, and US experience to, to come, I should say firstly that, that many parts of the sterling journey pretty much completed and the US dollar LIBOR journey um, uh, now taking place um, is that many, many parts of that journey are the same. And that should give everyone involved in the journey confidence that it, that it can be successful and it can be smooth. Even more so as firms um, who are, you know, big firms obviously present both in the UK and in the, the US, and they can learn from the small glitches um, that, that did occur on the Sterling side. One advantage that we did have in the UK um, and indeed in Switzerland was that there was never any serious suggestion from market participants that we needed credit sensitive rates anymore. So it was unambiguous from the beginning that Sonia would be the future centre of gravity of interest rate markets. And Sonia, like SOFA in the, in the US, it's easy for users to understand. It's got strong central bank backing. It's the most robust uh, interest rate benchmark um, available. And I'm aware that that bit of the journey in US dollar interest rate markets has been a little bit more complicated. And um, what do I mean by glitches, you might reasonably ask. 
I mean, these are small things. Um, the end of the sterling yen Swiss franc um, weekend, which was over the New Year holiday, has just taken place. I'd say sort of 98% success in terms of the uh, successful operational application of fallbacks. But yeah, there were a few examples of, of systems being unable to apply those fallbacks to more exotic trades without manual intervention or the unexpected and um, seemingly incorrect impact on trade value or risk metrics um, in the systems for, for non-standard trades. But no really major problems uh, that we know about at the moment, at least. And the big international firms, as I said earlier, will be able to learn from that sterling experience when it comes to the end of US dollar market. Yeah, I mean, definitely in the US, the, the ball's rolling downhill and gathering a, a good amount of steam. But look, one tool, one tool that we that we talked about very early. It, it took a little bit of a roller coaster and involved into having a piece of the puzzle here was using synthetic rates to bridge gaps in different parts of the market for different types of rates. Um, in the UK, there was some introduction of synthetic for some use to manage to manage some of this transition. Can you talk a little bit? Well, maybe first define synthetic because I think it gets a lot of uh, you know gets used, but but make sure that that people fully understand that. Then secondly, talk about um, you know, exactly how it's used in the context of, of of managing this here in the in, in the short term in the in the UK and then and then potentially what that could mean uh you know in, in here in the US. Yes. So synthetic LIBOR um, is something that becomes possible because of one of those powers that we have as the regulator and supervisor of LIBOR. In particular um, and maybe they'll make a Marvel superhero movie about you guys soon if you have superpowers. Maybe they will. Uh, well, I am a fan, but I'm yeah. <laughs> not sure I have delusions of that of that kind. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, synthetic libel comes from this power we have to be able to require the administrator of libel to publish the rate um, using a different methodology in certain circumstances. And one of those circumstances is where the rate is no longer representative because there's sort of panels from which it, um, it used to uh, be compiled um, no longer meet, therefore it's no longer representative. And we have used that power um, in respect of sterling and yen LIBOR, um, in respect of some of the settings, not all of them. We didn't use it for Swiss or for Euro um, LIBOR. And we've used the power to require publication um, of a LIBOR number on the familiar LIBOR screens. But that number is actually composed of the relevant risk-free rate term version of the relevant risk-free rate, so Sonia for sterling, Tona for yen, plus a fixed and never-changing spread. So the combination of those two things is a fair and reasonable approximation um, of what LIBOR might have been um, into the future. And the way we've um, chosen that methodology um, and that fixed spread um, means that the expected value of that aligns completely with the cross-jurisdictional um, global consensus on fair fallbacks for LIBOR. And so there's no advantage in kind of waiting for synthetic LIBOR um, rather than um, putting in place um, uh, your transition agreements with your customer or you signing the ISDA protocol using those standards. So, 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 Edwin, just to clarify, that means it, it links the math 
links to what the ARC has come up with U.S. dollar fallbacks. The math links to what is this come up with derivative fallbacks across currencies. So if you under every rock, the math is kind of the same. That, that was the thinking there. Exactly. So it takes you to the same place. Um, and that meant, um, I think there's no doubt that having that there for anyone who hadn't managed to reach agreement with their counterparty, who is still this month looking at um, IBAs or um, Reuters or Bloomberg screen for the LIBOR number, they will see that synthetic number composed from the risk-free rates. They'll be able to use it for this year. Um, and I, help, I think that helped achieve a sort of smooth landing um, for the transition. Really important thing to say, though, Jason, is that no one should assume that that will also happen for US dollar LIBOR. On the US dollar side, um, we and the US authorities um, and the panel banks um, agreed a different way of buying a bit more time to deal with the legacy transactions. And that, of course, is the extension of the for 18 months until June 2023 um, of the US dollar LIBOR panel. So that's um, what's designed to address the legacy problem in US dollar. Got it. So slightly different tack they're taking. Obviously, the 18-month production in the US, the synthetic for, I believe it's one-year period in, in, in sterling and, and some of the, the, the other items. Um, is there any, um, you know, should the market think about anything uh, in the context of these different paths that were taken between the U.S. and U.K., or, or is really the end game the same, and and market participants should appro- approach it similarly? I think, I mean, being um, especially back in um, sort of spring of last year when we announced the different arrangements for sterling yen um, and dollar, there was a lot of focus on of a headline difference in terms of longevity of the panel. Um, and I've always tried to um, highlight to people that actually underneath that sort of headline difference there's actually enormous similarity in that both synthetic LIBOR for yen and sterling and the panel um, for US dollars are only for use in legacy contracts. None of those are for use in new contracts. Um, and obviously, all of those, whether it's the panel or the synthetic rates, they will come to an end um, after a reasonable period to complete the transition. So really, it's a similarity, and not the differences that are most strong. So, so obviously, we had this this run up in December for the other currencies, and, and and now just to kind of bring it in real time, now the 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 spotlight of the on the movie has shifted over to the U.S. markets and and the run up to 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 summer of next summer now that we're in 22 the summer of of 23 and july 1 or june 30 depending on on, on how you keep track at at home uh, no better way to spend america's birthday weekend i guess next year than uh waving goodbye to to libor um what's one message that you can kind of send to u.s markets or, or maybe two messages that you kind of learned over the run-up in the last few weeks of last year that we can think about applying as we as we think about the the next you know uh, 17, 18 months. So, so I think that's an easy one actually because the the real lesson from the sterling transition um, and indeed the the yen and the Swiss franc ones um, based on the the things we've heard from firms there and from our counterpart authorities in those countries is that. 
it is generally possible to reach agreement with counterparties to change contracts um, within the time that is now available to do so. Um, massive success um, from banks here in Japan and Switzerland in terms of getting those agreements to switch to the new risk-free rates. And, and both sides or all sides of those transactions agreeing that was the, the sensible thing to do. So uh, if you want to avoid that unsettling risk of contract frustration at the end of June 2023, um, then you can do so. That, that route is open. And I would say, don't wait. There's no time um, like the present expertise um, and awareness are probably at their highest. There's lots of LIBOR transition experts um, out there now. Um, and you also have the, the really encouraging precedent of success. Uh, that This has worked in, in other currencies and other jurisdictions. Again, going back to 2017 and the incredulity uh, that you reference like i don't think people would have claimed that it would have kind of you know happened and people would be focused on 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 a lot of other things um you know, look just to you know i think about this and i think about uh you know taking a peek inside you know you joke about your conversations with ed uh with david in, in your living rooms and such obviously COVID has taken this in, a, in an interesting direction and if you were to layer the pandemic on top of that when 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 uh mr bailey spoke none of us would have predicted kind of the the success here what are some of the what are some advice or lessons that you were given along the way or maybe even prior in your career that that you kind of used you know as you climb this uh this mountain here and, and and took this on you know against obviously the face of a lot of people uh questioning its its possibility at the beginning that that's uh that that's quite a tough one that one um and i think that um, my answer is that never assume that you've got nothing more to learn about the subject and uh, always encourage uh, others to, to criticise your ideas. Um, but, but here is the, the, the bit that one of my previous bosses uh, advised me and I've been grateful for, is that if the evidence in front of you does point in one direction um, rather than another, then keep making the case because either you will learn something really important from what others say back to you, um, or if you are right, then others will be persuaded in the end. Um, and I think there were a few um, bits of, of this journey, and I'm going to, to specifics, where, where it looked like quite hard going to, to win people around to what we thought the right path was. But in the end, um, consensus around those things formed, and um, that was hugely important. Yeah, consensus is powerful, especially uh, uh, across the globe. Uh, across the globe. So we talked about obviously the, the 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 smoothness that happened in the other currencies. We're focused on it, you know, in the U.S. You know, you've spent such a disproportionate amount of your time and energy on this over the last, you know, three four years. Where, what are the things that you're thinking about and, and, and focused on? Obviously, markets are evolving every day. Quite frankly, the markets are very different than they were three, four years ago when, when we started this conversation. There's so many different things in the ether that are that, that are causing uh, things in the market. What, what are some of your shifts or, or what would you say some of the things that the FCA is thinking about now that this monumental um, you know, item is, is, is somewhat uh, in, you know, either past or deeply entrained? Yeah, another great question. And 
yeah, I am very pleased at the prospect of being able to spend a little bit more time on things other um, than than my board transition. Not notwithstanding um, my pleasure at the, the successes that have been achieved um, on the, the LIBOR front, and that there are um, there are lots of things happening in financial markets. Um, that uh, all of the listeners to this will be very aware of and I think can have some pretty fundamental impacts. And the one that comes to mind is obviously uh, the impact of ESG considerations on investment and, and other operational decisions. Um, but for me personally, um, I think one thing I'm particularly looking forward to um, and using um, the, the benefit of that experience on the LIBOR side of industry and authorities working together um, is working on the UK's sort of post-Brexit financial market landscape. So we obviously have a wonderful opportunity to, to shape the, the rules here and to coordinate with participants here. And we have the great benefit of many international participants in UK financial markets um, to make that regulatory framework the best possible one for firms um, looking to conduct financial business. And uh, as we come out of this pandemic and it becomes more possible to meet um, people face to face again and in the room, I sense tremendous enthusiasm um, for quite a lot of ways to do that um, and quite a lot of consensus on the things we can do together to, to make financial markets work even better. Yeah, I mean, Brexit, pandemic, so many things kind of layered on top of this this change. And we still, you know, collectively, as you indicate, in a globally coordinated way, we're able to to pull off the one of the biggest foundational changes in uh, in financial markets. Uh, you know, pretty remarkable. Uh, you know, I'm glad I was able to to, to watch it happen uh, in, in real time. Um, before we close, any other, you know, kind of final thoughts here, Edwin, on 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 last takeaways or, or, or folks in in that, that, that people should think about. Um, obviously, the big change, uh, I think you gave some some good nuggets before around, uh, you know, people know no time like the present. But any last uh, parting uh, parting thoughts before we uh, before we let you go? Well, I, I'll come to that in just a moment, though. I did want to say, Jason, that I think you, you and, and many others, possibly many others listening to this will We'll have done more than just watch um, that uh, uh, you and, and teams in like New York or Goldman Sachs or wherever it might be were, were really important players in, in helping to, to land this successfully. And that then goes to um, reiterating a key message, which is that this um, has, it seems, um, in very large part worked smoothly. Um, it can clearly do so for US dollar as well. Um, that does require the team effort. It does require preparation for the key dates, um, which will come. Uh, but uh, be encouraged um, that it will work. I think last of all, be encouraged not only by the, the success in avoiding disruption from transition, but by the fact that actually the end of LIBOR and the move to the risk-free rates um, takes us to a stronger financial system because those rates are not only more robust and more transparent, um, but also they're probably better for almost all the purposes for which um, interest rate benchmarks are used. So most of those derivatives are about um, hedging the general level of interest rates, not bank credit risk. 
never made any sense for, for companies to issue bonds um, referencing benchmarks that, that could go up in times of economic stress um, uh, as credit concerns around financial institutions change. Never really made any sense for consumers to be um, pitched to a benchmark that they had virtually no hope of understanding um, and which did expose them to that risk that interest payments would go up um, just at the time when the economy um, was heading south um, instead. So um, it's uh, uh, it's been a long journey. It's been required a lot of work, but, it, but it's been a worthwhile one. Well, uh, thank you for that. One thing's for sure, you and I have a have a, a opportunity in front of us for many years to get invited to business school classrooms and explain what that what that LIBOR thing was uh, once upon a time and and, and how it changed. Um, so, Edwin Schooling Ladder, uh, the UK's Financial Conduct Authority's Director of Markets and Wholesale Policy, uh, one of the key people in in driving forward one of the most foundational. Um, changes here in, in financial markets. We can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, I thank you for all of your collaboration personally. And uh, thank you for joining us here on, on this episode of BNY Mellon Perspectives and uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, Garrett here again. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. As I said at the top, keep listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Most importantly, and if you're willing, leave a review or rating and tell us your feedback. You can find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, bnymelon.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the next episode. BNY Mellon is the corporate brand of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation and may be used to reference the corporation as a whole and or its various subsidiaries generally. This material does not constitute a recommendation by BNY Mellon of any kind. The information herein is not intended to provide tax, legal, investment, accounting, financial, or other professional advice on any matter and should not be used or relied upon as such. The views expressed within this material are those of the contributors and not necessarily those of BNY Mellon. BNY Mellon has not independently verified the information contained in this material and makes no representation as to the accuracy, completeness, timeliness, merchantability, or fit for a specific purpose of the information provided in this material. BNY Mellon assumes no direct or consequential liability for any errors in or reliance upon this material. This material may not be reproduced or disseminated in any form without the prior written permission of BNY Mellon. Trademarks, logos, and other intellectual property marks belong to their respective owners. Copyright 2022, The Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, Member FDIC, All Rights Reserved.